have you ever thought about that? That Christians are called ambassadors for Christ. You represent the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And of course, the scripture affirms that there's coming a day when the Great Commission will be fulfilled. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are currently in our series on evangelizing, and today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, Sharing Christ Consistently. Today, Dr. Brogy reminds us that we must be sensitive to the call of God so that we do not miss the opportunities that He has placed in front of us. Please join us in the book of Acts, chapter 8, as we continue. Look, all the time, God is bringing people to Himself, and if we have eyes to see it, He can use us in that process in some way. I think of the Lord Jesus, who had a compulsion to go through Samaria. He didn't go up along the Jordan River. He didn't go up along the coastline. He went through Samaria, something a Jew never did, because He knew there was a woman there. And of course, that woman goes back, and God brings a whole town to Christ. And then Jesus says to his disciples, I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Very often when I'm privileged to introduce someone to Christ, I'm just entering into someone else's labor. Maybe a grandmother, maybe a mother, maybe a brother or sister has been praying for them. Oh, Lord, they need Christ. They don't see their need. Show them, open their eyes. Maybe someone else had shared with them 10 times ever before I got to them. And you enter into someone else's labor. John the Baptist had been in this area plowing the soil. These people were ripe to hear the gospel. So verse 27, he got up and went, and behold, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, or Candace as the Brits would say. Candace is not her name. That's a title like Pharaoh or Caesar. She's queen of the Ethiopians, who was in the, and the eunuch was in charge of all her treasure, and he'd come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, eunuchs, of course, were altered men. They usually were over a king's harem, but very often, if they were faithful, they rose to positions of power, and this man, under modern terms, was the secretary of the treasury. Now, we know he's not a Gentile because Acts 10 tells us the first Gentiles to come to faith is Cornelius, or Cornelius, if you prefer, in his household. Um, If he was emasculated and castrated both as a eunuch, then at best he was a God-fearer. If he had only been castrated, then he could have been circumcised, and under the New Testament, he was called a proselyte. He could have been a direct descendant of Solomon. Solomon had married a number of women under the Old Covenant. He wouldn't be considered a believer today, but under the hardness of heart, under the Old Covenant, God allowed certain things, never endorsed them, but allowed it. And of course, uh, during uh, some years ago, there was a huge exodus from Ethiopia, black African Jews. They had descended from Solomon, and the Israeli government They had like three hours. The Ethiopian government says you have three hours. And there was this massive exodus, and they airlifted 13,000 Ethiopian Jews into Israel. So whoever this man was, we know he was not a Gentile. 
We know he had traveled some 200 miles. We know he went to Jerusalem to worship. We know he left empty like millions of Americans will today. They'll go to different types and stripes of churches where the gospel is not preached, the Bible is not opened. Verse 28, and he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. He was reading out loud because that's very often what people do in this part of the world. If you've been to the Western Wall with me, you'll see Jewish people praying out loud or reading the scriptures out loud. Why? Because they want to give their full concentration to what they are saying or to what they're praying. They're not trying to practice their righteousness before men. They're, they, they just take the scripture seriously. And he's reading the prophet Isaiah, and he's reading the Septuagint. As you know, most Jews read Hebrew, but there came a time when they lost their ability to read Hebrew because of the deportation. And so they read their Bible in Greek. And so you see Philip quoting the Greek translation here of the Old Testament, or Luke uh, recording it for us, what this man is reading. So he's a eunuch. He's educated, educated enough such that he can read Greek. A lot of people were illiterate. Uh, he's in an executive position uh, that allowed him to travel to Jerusalem. He's wealthy. He bought a scroll. You know how expensive a scroll was? Very few people owned a personal scroll unless you were extremely wealthy. But it was important to this man. Maybe he had met a rabbi in, in, in Jerusalem, and the rabbi says, I know you're a eunuch, and I know there are some restrictions based on you, based on Deuteronomy 23, but hey, look, there's a really positive future for eunuchs, and there's this prophet by the name of Isaiah who speaks about it. You can go home and read Isaiah 56 if you're interested. And we'll see in just a minute that under the providence of God, he's going to be in a section of Isaiah. Isaiah is no small scroll. It's a section of Isaiah that preaches the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Again, verse 29, then the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. He's sensitive to the Spirit of God. Remember, he had never asked why he should get on this desert road. Now it's apparent why he should go there. Go up and join this chariot. God's Spirit doesn't say, do you feel comfortable knocking on chariot doors? He didn't ask, are, are you capable of rubbing shoulders with the political elite? Um, do you like confrontational evangelism versus lifestyle evangelism? Um, do you have a spiritual gift in this area or not? Do you have a gift to reach Ethiopians? Just go speak to them. And Philip simply says in his heart, yes, sir. Go up and join this chariot. Now, the Spirit of God is the one who brings people to himself. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. And so before we become Christians, God begins to orchestrate circumstances in our life. He brings people our way. He, he crafts the circumstances so that we might at some point come under the call of the gospel. I was 18 years old when I believed Christ as my Savior. Gone to church every week of my life. When I, on my 18th birthday, my mother said I'd missed just two days. One was a Sunday when I was born, and the other was I was in the hospital because I had gotten my arm caught in a lawnmower. Otherwise, I'd been there my whole life, but never heard truth. I believe in God's providence. I've shared with some of you. God spared my grandfather, who was 86 years old, 
so that I could tell him what had happened to me. He had never heard it before, had gone to the same church for 86 years, received Christ as his Savior. He died a week later. Now, how do you stay sensitive to God where you don't miss opportunities? Well, you have to spend some time with the Lord in his word. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist of the 19th century, said this, Satan will do anything to interrupt your time with Jesus Christ, even if, me, if, even if it means adjusting the window shade. John R. W. Stott, now in heaven, the great Anglican uh, pastor and theologian and communicator, was speaking to a group of pastors at a, the Keswick con- Conference, and he said this, the development of our inner lives is the first priority for every Christian, including the pastor. But then he admitted a rather strange paradox in his own life. He said, the thing I know that will give me the deepest joy, namely to be alone and unhurried in the presence of God, aware of his presence, my heart open to him, is often the thing I least want to do. Why? Because we're in a spiritual battle. You go to plan to spend some time with the Lord and you get 10,000 reasons why you don't. Why? Because the evil one whose goal is to take as many people into the eternal lake of fire where his last place of residence will be. He doesn't want you to grow. He'll keep you, if he can, out of the Scripture. So you must be sensitive to the call of God. Secondly, there in your outline, you must be sharing the Christ of God. You know, there are a lot of people who call themselves missionaries or out there building buildings and digging wells and planting crops and educating people and dispensing medicine. And that's all good if it gives you an opportunity to share the gospel with them. But if it doesn't, it's a colossal failure and it's a waste of money. Look, this church has over 300 missionaries we support monthly. And one of the questions on the questionnaire is, when was the last time you personally took someone through the plan of salvation? Oh, you know, two years ago, and you want me to support you three or $400 a month? to go to a foreign country where the culture is different, the language is different, and you can't even share the gospel here. Now, you may not go overseas, but you can go next door. Look at verse 30. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? He ran up. Again, the timing is important. One, he, he, he needs to meet the chariot, but he needs to be there right at the right time. Isaiah is a big scroll. Remember, at this point, there was no codexes, there's no books. That doesn't happen until the fourth century. The prophet Isaiah is a thick scroll. In fact, he's called a major prophet, not because he's more important, but because of the length, a term that maybe, unfortunately, we've used since the fourth century. And Isaiah is longer than all the 12 minor prophets put together. They're shorter. So he's working through the scroll, and in the providence of God, he's in Isaiah 53. It's like an eyewitness standing at the foot of the cross, explaining ever before it happens all that is going to unfold on the day that the Lord Jesus is crucified. So he asks him an important question. Do you understand what you're reading? Notice he took the initiative. He could have said to himself, well, I'm from Israel, and he's a black African. There might be a race barrier. Or he is an important politician. I'm just a preacher. No, he, he takes the initiative. He could have reasoned, well, he's reading the Bible. I don't want to interrupt his time with the Lord. He asks a simple question. He takes the initiative. Do you understand what you are reading? 
Look, we need to see open doors when God provides them. We don't need to break doors down and be obnoxious. When God begins to open up a person's heart, you don't want to miss that. He's under direct orders. He doesn't say to this guy, hey, man, you're a wicked sinner. You need to repent. He just asks, do you understand what you're reading? And it's good to have a few questions to ask people. Sometimes God opens a door and he turns the subject to spiritual things. Sometimes they know I'm a pastor. Sometimes they have no idea what I do. I'll say, you know, as a Christian, I'm always interested in trying to encourage people spiritually. And I meet some people who've gone to church their whole life and some people who just go a couple times a year. I meet some people who've read the Bible cover to cover a dozen times and other folks who don't even own a Bible and everything in between. So I want to be sensitive to folks. Can I ask you a question? And I'll say, on a scale of zero to 100, zero, I have no idea. And 100, I have no doubt. I'm absolutely positive. How certain are you if you died in the next 10 seconds that you go to heaven? Are you 25, 50, 75, 100? By the way, wherever you're watching in the world today, how would you answer that? Are you 25, 50, 75, or 100? Where would you put yourself on that scale? And if God opens the door wide, I want to walk through it. I don't typically like to just leave people attract. Because like the eunuch, how can I understand what Isaiah is writing about unless someone explains it to me? Now, if I do leave them the tract, I leave them, would you like to know God is your friend? Because there's kind of running commentary in that tract where we explain the verses as to what they mean. But you don't want to miss opportunities. Put out in the margin, would you, next to this verse, Colossians 4, 3 and 4. Colossians 4, 3 and 4. Knowing how important the gospel is for people to hear, notice what Paul asked the church at Colossae to pray him, pray for him in two areas. One, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word. So on the one hand, the scripture says, go and preach the gospel to all creation, but God doesn't call you to talk to everyone. So you want to ask, well, God, who do you want me out of this planet of approximately 8 billion people? Who do you want me to share the gospel with? Pray for an open door. You say, if I pray for an open door of opportunity, God might bring someone. I'm not sure what I would say. Well, look at the second half of his prayer request. That I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Here's a great theologian who wrote the Constitution of Christianity in the book of Romans. And he says, pray for me that I can make the gospel clear. It would seem like that's a given. But listen, when you start praying, God, give me an open door. And when that door comes, help me to make it clear. Just watch what God does. So the eunuch invites him into the chariot. Look at verse 32. Now the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its share is silent, so he does not open his mouth. Now the text tells me, it's a messianic text, it's about the Messiah, that he's silent like a sheep before its sharers. And of course, the Lord Jesus before the Sanhedrin, we studied them a little bit last week, was silent. He is ridiculed, he's scourged by Pilate, he's scoffed at by the soldiers, but he never defends his innocence. Why? That he might be found guilty, that you and I could be found innocent. There were 12 legions of angels overlooking the battlements of heaven, 
One angel comes down in one Old Testament text and wipes out 185,000 of Israel's enemies. But Jesus doesn't call down a single angel. He permits those men to take him, to nail him to the cross as a lamb before its shearers is silent. In humiliation, verse 33, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed. It's cut off, the Hebrew text says. It's cut off. It means he's exterminated from the earth. He, he, he's crucified. And of course, Isaiah describes crucifixion here 700 years before Christ, ever before it's thought up by the Persians and perfected by the Romans as a means of capital punishment. Pierce through for our iniquity. Why? Because God knows the future. The eunuch answered Philip, verse 34, and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Who is Isaiah talking about? Of himself or of someone else? Now, that's a great question. He wanted to know the identity of the pronouns, he and his. Who is Isaiah referring to? You talk about someone ripe, someone open, kind of like Paul's asked by the jailer. He and Silas, sirs, what must I do to be saved? I think he's ripe. Uh, Peter is preaching to the thousands of Jews on the day of Pentecost, and they say, brethren, what shall we do? Verse 35, we're told, Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, and that's where all effective evangelism is done, your first birth came through perishable seed. My dad is dead, his dad is dead, his dad is dead. I'm from a long line of perishable seed. But we've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, the tool that the Spirit of God uses to bring about a second birth is the Scripture. So the text says he preached Jesus to him. Remember, the first book of the New Testament had not yet been written. For nearly seven years, all the early church had was the Old Testament scriptures to preach Jesus. But he's there. He said, Abraham saw my day and believed. Moses wrote about me. It's all about Jesus. Jesus said, the scriptures speak of me. And he preached Jesus. He didn't preach critical race theory or social justice. He didn't preach about economics or talk about how hot it was down in Gaza. No, he preached Jesus the one whom Isaiah would already write about who would be born of a virgin. A virgin will conceive and bear a child, and the child's name by title will be called Emmanuel, that is, God with us. A baby is going to be born, but this is going to be no ordinary baby. He wrote of it earlier in this book that this baby's name will be called Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And he preached three simple truths and if you're going to have the privilege to introduce someone to Christ, these are the same three simple truths you must preach. Don't make the gospel complicated. It's not. Children can grasp it. You know, sometimes people hear a sermon, they say, boy, he was so deep. I, I couldn't understand it. Look, when there's mist in the pulpit, there's fog in the pew. <laughs> Vance Havner, the great preacher, dead now for some 30 years, said, just because the river is muddy doesn't mean that it runs deep. Three simple truths. First, Philip shared about sin. He shared about sin. Point A there in your outline. Isaiah 53, 6. In fact, why don't you turn to Isaiah? Uh, if you're new to the Bible, find Psalms. That's about dead center. If you just open your Bible to the center, you're in the book of Psalms. And scan to the right, 
and you'll soon find Isaiah. I started studying Isaiah 53 about eight months ago, and I've written a 356-page commentary I just finished on Isaiah. I don't know that I'll ever publish it, but this chapter is so rich. It is so full, it's just mind-blowing. Look at Isaiah 53 in verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Isaiah is describing our need for Christ, and he does so by reminding us that we're like sheep gone astray. Sheep are notoriously short-sighted. They're just interested in the next clump of grass. They often don't look where they're headed. Sheep tend to be self-centered. If you ever watch them, my brother had a whole herd once in his home in Vermont, and if they'll grab the clump that's available in front of you, they'll, they'll grab it. They're just selfish, self-centered kind of animals. And they tend to travel together, and usually one ends up leaving, leading, the rest follow. That was certainly true of the leaders in Israel. They were blind guides, and the people just followed. And so Peter, picking up on the analogy of you and I being like sheep, says in 1 Peter 2.25, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Sheep are stupid and headstrong. They've all gone astray. You say, are you talking about me, preacher? <laughs> I'm talking about me too. Yeah, we're, we're stupid. We're headstrong. We're self-centered. We want our own way. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. He is reminding him that by nature we are sinful. By nature, we're all fallen and sinful before the Lord. So he explained that, and he would have explained in the process that, they, that we need forgiveness. We need a different kind of righteousness. Isaiah has already said that your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. He doesn't say your, your bad deeds are like filthy rags. Your best deeds are like dirty rags in the sight of an absolutely holy God. And if you have an inadequate view of sin, you'll have an inadequate view of your need for righteousness. And so in Jesus' day, the Pharisees thought they were so righteous. Paul says in Romans 10, they sought to establish a righteousness of their own rather than receiving the righteousness that comes from God. Some people think they're too bad to be saved, but there's a whole lot of folks they think they're too good to be saved. They think the message I preach is for the prostitute, the drunkard, uh, the murderer, the thief, but not for them. But the Scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Look, if you're hanging over a cliff with a 10-link chain, how many links need to break for you to go under? Only one. For whoever keeps the whole line yet stumbles in one point, He's been, become guilty of all. That's how holy God is. And so the Pharisees were notorious for comparing themselves to someone else. I'm not like the prostitute. I'm not like the publican. I'm not like the drunkard. Certainly God will let me in. Look next to Hitler. I'm just a sterling example of what people should be. But God compares me to the glory of God, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. And the ground is level. He preached about sin. Secondly, Philip preached about substitution. He preached about substitution. Here at the end of Isaiah 53, 6, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of all to fall on him. The Hebrew word for fall means to strike or to attack. It was used of an army who would surround their enemy and then 
plunge on them. And the Scripture is clear that the one who caused this to happen was the Lord God. Now, it would be easy for someone to conclude that, well, Governor Pilate was the source of the crucifixion. After all, he was the one who gave the order for Jesus to be crucified. Someone else might conclude, well, it was Judas, because Judas was the one who betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Someone else would say, well, it's the Jewish Sanhedrin. They, they trumped a false charge. They, they couldn't arrest him on a religious charge, so they said he claims to be a king. They trumped up a political charge. Someone else might say, well, it was the Roman soldiers who, who did this because they were the ones who literally drove the nails through his hands and feet. Someone else might say, well, it was the Satan who did it. He was the one, the evil one, who literally came to inhabit Judas that night because Judas was open to it, and Judas followed his promptings. Others might say, well, it's all of us. Look at verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Yes, your hard hearts were the hammers and your sins were the nails. But understand, according to Isaiah 53, 6, it was not Pilate, it was not Annas, it was not Caiaphas, it was not Satan, it was not the Sanhedrin, it was not the howling mob, it was not the soldiers, it was not even us. It was the Lord God. God caused this. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 10 and verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for, it's the preposition ante in Greek, for or in the place of many. Jesus came to die in our place. He wasn't dying for his sin, for he had none. The resurrection proves that. Every calendar affirms it and confesses it. B.C. before Christ, 2021, Anna Domini, in the year of the Lord. He died for you. He died in your place. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. Again, he never defended himself. Look at substitution in verse 10 as it's described. But the Lord, that is Yahweh, was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper him. God, the Lord Jehovah, was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. This was God's pleasure. Why? Because God loves to forgive. You say, does God really love me? He loves you this much. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Jesus was bearing the wrath that your sin, that my sin deserves. It was planned. It was prophesied when Peter stood up. He said in the book of Acts that Jesus' death, that he was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This was all God's plan. And Isaiah writes of it 700 years before. In fact, God begins to write of it in the book of Genesis. Please join us tomorrow for part three and the conclusion of Sharing Christ Consistently. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program Sharing Christ Consistently. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. 
You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to Search the Scriptures.